I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast. A podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. Darren Hinch, welcome to That's Life. Hi, Squire. Congratulations. I know you're a long-time Melbourne supporter, not so much now, but it must have been marvellous to see them come play the way they did and win. Look, it was what I mean. I was number two ticket holder many years ago uh, with Ron Walker as number one, and uh, I loved the team. I uh, I started a new support group called the Tridents after the Devils and um, Fork, the Tridents, and our first. Um, star, so-called would-be star, at our first function was some teenage singer called Kylie Minogue. I don't know what happened to her, but uh, she was very good. Well, she she went on to do some <laughs> amazing things. I'll tell you what? a funny story. I shouldn't tell you the story, but uh, Annette Philpott, who was one of the musical director for the Tridents and things, we both recalled this the other day, that uh, while she was singing as a teenager, Kylie made a mistake and she turned and glared at her backup singers in the band as if it was their fault. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Look, anyway, it was a great win. I um, I did say, I watched it, obviously, and I said last night, I tweeted that I have really seen, it was a great grand final, but I've really seen a team who's losing at half-time suddenly turn around and kick something like 10 unanswered goals. They were just coming from everywhere to be... At the end of the first quarter, we're winning. End of the second quarter, we're losing. Here comes Melbourne again. And then they turned on one of the most blistering six or eight minutes of football that I have ever seen. It was bang, goal, bang, goal, bang, yeah. goal. Knocked them right out. I mean, they were pummeled from uh, from that time uh, on. Well, it suddenly went from being like, Melbourne was like 1-7 or 1-9 and, and the, the, the Bulldogs was like six or seven goals. And suddenly it turned around and we scored umpteen goals and they scored one in, in, in a half or two or three and a half of football. It was, it was glorious. And after 57 years for, for Ron Barassi and Neil Danahar and all the and, – and, 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 and um, uh, others who have been there supporting him who have never seen a Melbourne win in their lifetime, it is, it is awesome. And when you've been and watched us being beaten – by the biggest score in AFL history at one stage, and then to go down and lose by more than 80 points in the grand final when the when the boys came to play the men's, to see what happened last night was, was awesome. Now, 1964, that's a, a long time ago. I <laughs> sort of have a memory of it. The Beatles came out in 1964. They did? Uh, you know, the E.H. Holden, an iconic Australian car, came out in 1964. You know, but when you when you look back, that's a long time ago. Believe it or not, Tony shows my age. I think I want to hold your hand was a number one hit in 1964. I covered the Beatles' arrival in, in Australia. They were, were extraordinary. I went, I went and watched them, and of course, they um, in Sydney they didn't have um, Ringo Starr on the drums because he was sick or something, and uh, so they had a replacement drummer. I think it was Suckliff. I'm not sure. Now, look, it's been an unbelievable week. So many things have happened. Oh. Um, where were you when the earthquake hit? Yeah, where were you when the earthquake hit? Well, I was standing on my... I live in the top 20 floors of an apartment building and I have was raised in New Zealand, so I know about earthquakes. We used to have earthquake drill when I was a kid. So if you're at school, you're told to hide under your desk. If you're at home, you ran for the bathroom. 
not for an anxious pee, but because that was the safest room in the house. You, Because apparently, supposedly, the plumbing in the bathroom is the last part of your house to fall down, okay? So we'd stand in the doorway in the bathroom when an earthquake hit. So I was... I was a bit used to it. I was standing in the floor of my apartment, walking around, talking on the phone, actually, and the floor started to tremble, and I thought, earthquake, and I was bracing myself for the 10 seconds later when the real quake hit, and boom, I thought the painting's going to fall off my wall. It was very savage, hit very hard. Uh, they didn't fall, but it reminded me of a, an earthquake I covered in 1970 in Los Angeles. I was on the 17th floor of the Hilton Hotel, and pictures did fall off the wall. That was a terrible earthquake. 43 people died in one accident when a veteran's hospital fell over like a giant matchbox. It just toppled over and 43 people died. And covering that story, two things. One, I recall driving another journalist down a, a deserted freeway and I thought, God, there's no cars. I don't know why, the cops were about to close the freeway because as you barreled along there, it was like a giant licorice strap had just been snapped in half. And we, driving down the freeway at that speed, luckily in a very big rented uh, American car, suddenly in front of you, there was a three-foot gap in the road and you had to gun the engine to get over it. And it was pretty scary. And then we then we flew over the, over the devastation and looked at all that as well. It was... It was, it was terrible, and it brought back a joke that I remember from those times about the San Andreas Fault. And I noticed after the Melbourne one, somebody referred to it as the Dan Andreas Fault, which I thought was quite clever. <laughs> um, but in, in LA, which was on the San Andreas Fault, that's why they have so many earthquakes, um, the rumour was that the reason Howard Hughes bought so much land in Las Vegas was when the big earthquake came and California fell into the Pacific Ocean... Las Vegas would be the new West Coast. <laughs> so, He'd have a beach, beachfront property. He'd have a beachfront <laughs> office, that's right. So that was it. Look, they are scary. And Chapel Street copped it hard. I'm, I'm amazed and happy that uh, there was only very minor injuries, a uh, lot, lot of damage. But, uh, oh, God. And the conspirators came out as well on, on, on Facebook and Twitter saying that there's some secret, super secret, government agency, state or federal, that actually organised the earthquake to take the attention away from the demonstrations. <laughs> I mean, you think, geez, what, what, are these, what do these people have for breakfast? Just crazy. What, what it reminded me was um, the cartoon that, uh, I, I don't know who it was, Nicholson, I think, uh, Gough Whitlam and Margaret. Gough Whitlam? No, it was Tanberg. Tanberg, was it? That, in they, the they, age. They, yeah, they went Gough to China. And, Gough Whitlam and Margaret were in China when an earthquake hit there. Go ahead. Yeah, and uh, the, the cartoon has uh, Gough Whitlam in bed with Margaret. He's lying on top of her and he says, with a leering look on his face, did the earth move move for you too, darling? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I remember it very well, that Tamburg cartoon, but I'll correct you on one thing. Um, Tamburg is more decent than that. He, 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 he wasn't lying on top of her, he was lying alongside of her, <laughs> being the Prime Minister, okay? <laughs> okay. Uh, which reminds me, when, when Jackie Weaver and I got married, Tamburg sent me a personal cartoon, right? And it was lovely. It was me and Jackie lying in bed. In the cartoon, at the end of the bed is a man with a CFA um, bucket of water. (laughs) (laughs) 
He was Ron Tamberg was just a brilliant cartoonist. He was just in in those tiny little snapshots he could capture the world. You know, just very very simple. Look, I had a wonderful conversation with him at the Quill Awards once, um, mm. and uh, he told me he, he was living at Queenscliff or somewhere like that uh, down Geelong Way near the beach, and uh, he said what he would do is. Um, He'd go for a, he'd, he'd sort of talk to the editor in the morning, then go for a walk on the beach, and then he'd come back. And while he's walking on the beach, he would sort of look at what he was going to do. Then he'd do his cartoon. That was his day, and uh, you know, it's not not easy to. Oh no! Look, I, I, I knew, as an ex-editor, I know a lot of cartoonists. Um, two things, okay. One, Larry Pickering, who went off the rails in later years uh, with some of his ideas, but Larry Pickering said he got his start as a cartoonist. Um, just painting little cartoons and sticking them on the dunny wall at, his, at where he where he's living, and that ended up getting one of the, he became one of the best known cartoonists in Australia. Once I, I was editor of the Sun, I was looking for a new cartoonist, and so I um I, I brought a cartoonist out from uh, from the US, an Australian uh, whose name has just suddenly temporarily escaped me, and uh, anyway, I took him him and Pickering to dinner. At, uh, the, in, in, at the Hilton, and they had the biggest artistic shit fight. <laughs> it was terrible <laughs> because at the time Pickering been drawing a lot of when, when the Whitlam Gub was going under, uh, Pickering um, drew a lot of cartoons of, of, of the Gough Whitlam government as, as a toilet with a swinging door. And uh, I remember the American, the Australian in America saying, who was a Pulitzer Prize winner, saying, You've destroyed my art. You've destroyed my art. It all ended up in, in tears and they all went home. So it wasn't a great idea of mine to, to bring them over. I did hire a cartoonist and once he was, uh, he, he spoke very little English. He's very clever. But I remember once he just didn't get a grip on politics sometimes. He, gave, he presented a cartoon very late before edition time came and he had a fairly clever comment on it. But it didn't quite work. So I... Um, I got some in the art department to swap the heads on the people arguing, so that the one who, the one who was winning was actually the different one of the one he had painted, but which is not not very clever for your <laughs> for your cartoon. Well, Larry Pickering, you mentioned there, he was famous for bringing out the Pickering uh, calendar, yeah, which because um, I, I interviewed him once and he said. What, what I do is imagine people without their pants on because you strip them away of all of their pomp and ceremony. You know, Malcolm Fraser and all of these political leaders, they they, they look so powerful and whatever, but when you take their clothes off, they're just like everybody else. Yeah, he... Um, I, I, look, Larry was... I just played cards with Larry in Sydney years and years ago, but uh, he didn't become one of my favourite people, one because of his political as aspects later on, but uh, he, I was in that calendar. He depicted me uh, coming out of a toilet, I think, with a mouthful of poo, so... Um, oh, <laughs> uh, he was not... That calendar was not one of my... Not one of the things I kept. <laughs> uh, now, the other thing that happened during the week, and it started on Monday, was this uh, wild protest that sort of gathered outside the uh, CFMEU offices here in Melbourne, and then the protests have pretty much continued all week. What, what did you make of that when it first began? Well, it, I was surprised because he got the, uh, right outside the CFMEU and John Setka, who's not been averse to advocating violence himself in the past and, and, and getting involved in it, suddenly he comes out as the target and people were throwing throwing things at him and a look at his face was, 
this doesn't happen. <laughs> it's the other way around. It reminded uh, me of the look on the face of Nikolai Ceausescu, the Romanian leader, when he was up on the balcony there and he was trying to talk to all the people, you know, he, he's, his people, and they were revolting and uh, they actually killed him that, uh, that day. Uh, that's it was right. Christmas Eve 1991, I think. Yeah. Look, the um, so in the in the early stages, we'll get to the second stage, the uh, the shrine, which was disgusting. Um, I uh, I know a bit about union thuggery. When I was at Three AW, I'd upset the BLF, the Builders Labourers Federation, which is really a precursor of the CFMEU under Norm Gallagher, a very brutal a brutal union that used to call on concrete stops to uh, to ruin building projects, and I'd attack them and Gallagher, and a bunch of union thugs invaded 3AW and filled the, the whole of what we used to call the green room, the foyer. And I came out from the, uh, from the studio where I was on air to talk to them. And uh, they were very clever because they knew a law that I also knew that it's, it's illegal, since this is since World War II, it's illegal to invade a radio studio. Did you know that? No. It's illegal because uh, during World War II, uh, they brought this law in because they were scared that um, um, propagandists would maybe invade a radio studio and start talking up Japan or Germany. And so it became a, a federal offence to trespass in a radio studio. So that's why they stayed in, they didn't come into the studio, they stayed out in the foyer. I invited two of them in to come and talk to me and Brian White was our general manager and he agreed with me, and, but they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And on one occasion, around that time, you may remember there was a huge new building being put up next door to 3AW in Latrobe Street on the corner of Latrobe and uh, King or whatever it was. Um, and I'm outside on the terrace, on the, on the, on the terrace during a ratings party uh, talking up the team and suddenly we looked up and a, a guy in a, in a crane dropped a huge crane hook down to within two inches of my head. Just came and stopped it just before it got to my head. Like, this is what we can do. That's the extent of the thuggery, you know, that can happen. And, and Setko has covered himself with, with inglory on many occasions on that. But then later on... It be, I think the unionists became overtaken, even though you saw a lot of guys with work boots on, became overtaken by other other um, protesters, other anti-vaxxers and, uh, quote, freedom fighters, as they call themselves. And to see them, and I can see this from, from my, my house, um, to see them invade the shrine, the shrine of remembrance, and stand there talking freedom when people, the shrine is there to commemorate people who have died for their freedom, was just, I found it disgusting. I found it disgusting. And for people like um, Craig Kelly uh, to, to, to come out in defence of them, I think was, was just despicable. What do you make of their argument? That, well, well, let's focus on the, the, uh, the tradies, the building workers. Now, what they claim is that uh, uh, they don't want to be forced to be vaccinated. Look, and, uh, well, what's uh, being told uh, to them, uh, uh, unless they get vaccinated, they can't work. Yes, and neither they... Bloody well should. I use, almost use the F word. I think Dan Andrews on this one, I know you may not agree with me, is right. No, no, I, now, I, 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 I agree there, with you on this regard. Yeah, there are, there are, there are now more, there, in recent days, and we're over 700, 800 cases a day, there are now more 
COVID-affected people in the building industry than there are in aged care. I mean, you have to be vaccinated to work in aged care, to be a nurse, to be a doctor, to do other things. If they said journalists had to be double vaccinated, I'd put my hand up. I have been double vaccinated anyway. But, I mean, this is a, they were, tra were travelling out of um, affected areas into other areas. Uh, for them to get up there, and I think the cops were wrong to not move harder and faster. Well, that's my argument. The building industry, Darren, in my view, has been a protected species right through the 18 months or 20 months of the, uh, the, the this COVID period. Tony, I agree with you. I agree with you because of, I think, of uh, Andrew's union background. Correct. But in this case, the cops should have moved hard when they started putting their bloody tea tables up in the street, they should have been arrested. Well, on, on um, the Monday, on the Monday, uh, yes. you know, a handful of people arrived around 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. Uh, there would have been about 50 people there when the first two police officers arrived. And they asked the question, I know this because uh, someone who was there told me this. The police asked, what's going on here? And they said, this is, we, we want to talk to our union organisers. And the police then left. But they were breaking the chief health officer's directives. You don't exactly. gather in those numbers. And, and now, what, you either what, enforce these things universally, equally across the board, or you have problems. Yes, you're, you're quite right. I mean, they, they were a protected industry. Then they were shut down with a few days' notice. At that time, when they put in the tea, the tea table um, argument out there, protest, you had nurses and doctors who haven't had a bloody tea break for two years. It just... It, 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 you're, you're right, it's just so... They should have been hit harder and quicker and they've, they've learned a lot because I noticed when there's a small breakout at Luna Park or in St Kilda or somewhere in Northcote, the cops now move in and force and pick people off and arrest 20 or 30 and it goes away. Well, in my view, they should be doing that with whoever it is that protests, no matter what well, background, I, where they come from. Even if, even if it was Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. You, you, you should have. Any protest right now, I mean, I saw Stan Grounded inside saying, you know, protests are legal, but violent ones aren't. Protests are not legal right now. And we had on Friday, the Friday previous, Darren, mm. when they had this argument about, you know, closing down their lunchrooms. So what do they do? They take to the streets, they sit down in front, they block Melbourne traffic, they get out the barbecues and they have a barbecue and the police do nothing about that. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. Yeah, that, that was a mistake and they at least the cops did toughen up later on. Now, look, if there are individuals, and we've seen some people putting up videos, if there are cases of excess police force, then the, um, then the police uh, should investigate it. Well, mm -hmm. that's, that's the other thing, Darren, because really the police need to act within the law because if they mm -hmm. don't, what hope have we got? Mm -hmm. Now, some of the things that I've seen on video are atrocious. The, the, the guy being, you know, uh, sling-tackled down to the concrete floor or the, whatever it was. At Flinders Street Station. station. Mm. Appalling. Well, well, that is now being investigated. I mean, the, the only background that, that I'll be cautious about, I don't know... Was he being arrested? Was he being grabbed because he was a protester? Was he being grabbed because he was a, a fugitive? I know nothing about the case. So the Police um, Integrity Commission will, will look into that and uh, and see what happens. Well, well as, there was as another should, one. As they must. Yeah, there was another one in the street. I don't know what street it was. Uh, it, by the way, the, the, the anti-riot squad or whatever they're called, mm -hmm. it, it's, it, they, they do look 
pretty intimidating. Well, so they bloody well should. Well, if you, you're there illegally and you're throwing bottles and other crap and stones at the coppers, I don't care if the anti-riot squad turns up looking like the Gestapo. I mean, they are there for a reason to try yeah, and stop this. I, I, I agree with you, but... But they still look intimidating. Yes, they do. They're, well, they're meant to look intimidating. They're meant to tell you, to, <laughs> hey, this is serious. Go home. Yes, they, these pictures are being shown right around the world, and the video I wanted to talk about was when they they had this guy on the ground, uh, uh, two guys on the ground. I don't know what street it was in Melbourne. Uh, five, six, seven of these uh, anti-riot squad police. Uh, are there one one anti-riot squad police guy comes runs in and knees this guy in the kidneys, the one at the front, and the one at the back, he's already on the ground and he's being hit with the butt of a rifle. Now, what's going on there? Yeah, and those cases should be investigated because, as you say, quite correctly, the police must enforce the law but must obey the law. And uh, if those videos are correct, they must be investigated. Oh, by the way, uh, the, the, the police, whatever it's called now, the Integrity Commission, originally when they first formed it, it w did you know it was going to be called the Police Integrity Group? No. You know, and then which, they realised... Which, which would be P-I-G. Yeah, the acronym <laughs> would be PIG, and so somebody tweaked the thought, nah, that wouldn't be such a good <laughs> idea. Well, I, I wonder, wonder, you know, the Police Integrity Group, in the end they're police officers investigating, investigating police yeah. officers. Hmm. Now, I don't really, or well, not I don't really, I don't like that. It should be totally independent. Absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It should be, it should be. Anyway, having said all that, I, I think the police are right in breaking up the protesters, but they should be, uh, you know, d doing the same thing to everybody. Everybody's the same un under the uh, under the law. But, but, but look at the. I mean, it could, could have, this week could have started some new super spreads because one of those protesters is in hospital. Um, I think people disobeying the law uh, after Melbourne's win the football. We'll see, I think, some cases come out of that in the next six or seven days. Um, we're not out of this by any means. It's terrible. We're watching, this, watching the Sydney curve come down and the Melbourne curve go up. I mean, it's hard to remember. It's only two or three months ago we were celebrating donut days, mm. not one case. And now we're looking at six, seven, eight hundred cases a day. Before we move on to other matters, Darren, can I ask you a question? Do, yep. you, do you know how many ICU beds we have in Victoria? Look, I know the argument. I've been following your, your discussions on, on, on Twitter. They put out a, 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 a bulldust statement about 4,000 new ICU units. What it didn't say was we don't have the staff to, to uh, staff well, those well, well, 4,000 well, units. Well, what, that, what that statement said and the Premier said and the Minister at the time, Jenny McCarkle, said was they were going to fund the staff. Yeah, well, and, and we, we, I do not know today how many ICU beds we have, how many... We do know every day how many are being used and how many uh, people are on, are on ventilators, but the 4,000 figure was a myth, right? In so my view, what I then would say is, don't you think it's important that Victorians know what our surge capacity is? 
Can we get to 4,000? Can we get even higher? What's required to do that? How long does it take? Are we going to change the staff ratio? Can we have, instead of having three nurses, we have one? How is this all going to work if things go... Well, you can't can't just have one because sometimes it takes five nurses to turn a patient over, believe it or not. Um, The the scary thing here, and they've started to hint at it in the last few days, is it's going to affect... Uh, so-called elective surgery, which is an awful expression because it's not elective, it's badly needed, but it's not urgent. Um, it's going to affect people going to hospital with, with heart conditions. It's going to affect people needing this and needing that and needing hip replacements and knee operations because those beds could be filled with um, with COVID patients. I, 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 horrible hinge hunch, but I reckon <sighs> within the next two weeks we will be having more than a 1,000 cases a day. Well, I I agree with you. So my point is, I would like the Premier to come clean and explain the whole situation clearly. So people like you, you're a journalist, I'm a journalist. We don't know what the capacity is. How are people out there going to know? So, so tell us. Well, they're not going to know because they're going to be told, sorry, that surgery that's booked in for you on October the 3rd has now been postponed for four months. Yeah, that's right. But should they know that way or should, they, should the Premier come clean and say, this well, is you, what you, we you, have you, the you ability make, you to make, do? You make a very good point, a very strong point. And the, 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 the situation too is that um, uh, we are being held up without reopening because there is this apprehension about what might happen to their health system. Yeah, well, look, the, when, when, they, when they announced, I, I had warned on Twitter that don't expect too much from the roadmap. It's going to be less than you hope for. Uh, but to be honest, I didn't think it'd lock us down for another five weeks. I thought maybe another two. The five-week thing, this, this lockdown, I think for many Australians, many Victorians, has been the worst one we've ever had. I think it's because people are at the end of their tether. They're watching other people out there flaunting it and, and flouting it. Uh, it, it. It is very tough for people who are living alone, for pensioners, for families who can't see parents or grandparents. I mean, 10Ks is not a, a huge area, you know. People live in country towns and live in interstate. Um, I think we're... We do get tougher now than probably we, we did last year. We are now probably, I think within days, the most locked down city in the world. And the figures are showing it ain't getting better. Darren, let's uh, touch on the submarine crisis. Um, we had this deal with France. They were going to build these submarines. All of a sudden, we've at the, at the last minute, the Prime Minister rings the uh, President of France, Emmanuel Macron, and it tells him the deal's not on, we're going to go to the well, United States. Actually, correct you, he tried to ring him and he wouldn't take the phone call, so <laughs> he sent him a text message on the basis of, I don't speak French. Look, I you obviously sympathise with the French to one degree because they've lost a $90, million, $90 billion deal, but keep the two things in mind. Um, I, I support the PM and, and the US and the UK. We are traditional allies going with a new nuclear sub. So I think that's a smart idea and it, it enhances our relationship with the United States and the United Kingdom. But And keep this in mind, the French are, are always bloody whingers. This, this deal, this submarine deal, was years overdue, billions over budget. If that had been you in a private deal, you'd have called up the builder and said, hey, get nicked, I'm out of here. 
I mean, so for them to be protesting so hard and recalling their ambassador, they, it's very convenient to forget when they talk about loyalty and friendship. More Australians died in bloody France in two world wars than any Frenchman ever died in Australia. Well, that's true. That's a fact. Um, does it make us a nuclear target, though? I heard someone, a Chinese uh, academic, say, you know, n now our missiles will be pointed toward Australia when they weren't previously. No, I don't agree. I mean, we, we are, Morrison has said many times, it's a nuclear-powered submarine. It's not going to be nuclear-armed. Um, I don't think it changes anything for us. I think it en enhances us uh, by strengthening the alliance between the United Kingdom, the United States and us. And, you know, um, and the funny thing was with, 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 with this agreement and then with, uh, with Quad, with uh, us, the US... India and Japan, that also strengthens, I think, Australia in, in the Indo-Pacific. In all those meetings, though, they none of them mentioned the five-letter word, which is the elephant in the room, which was China. And I think anything we do to strengthen our position, because China is, I mean, China is, is the angry beast, and I think we have to do what we can with our allies to protect ourselves in the Indo-Pacific. Is it going to lead to an arms race in our area, though? The, the people of other countries are The Americans have already got nuclear weapons. We're not going to get them. Uh, I know that quite deliberately the Labor Party has supported the government on this for nuclear-powered submarines but would never support them for nuclear weapons. So I don't think it will change things. We've, we've, been, we've been given some... Um, encouragement by, by India and Japan in this area, also by several um, EU countries. We just signed a deal, a trade deal with Austria, so they're not offended by what we are doing. And uh, I, I, I think, I mean, I know it's, it's miles away. I mean, it's years away from getting any submarines unless unless the POMs lend us a couple. Um, and the Collins class have proved to be in a disaster. So... I noticed uh, Paul Keating was anti the idea uh, and, and the Greens also saying that uh, uh, what these are uh, are floating Chernobyls. Look, Paul Keating, whom, whom I admire for some of the work he's done in the past and one of the most charismatic politicians we ever had, but he's moved into Green territory. I mean, but Keating, Rudd and the Greens are opposed to this, which must, to me, tell me it's the right thing to do. <laughs> Uh, Mr Hinch, uh, I think we've run out of time. Out of time. Was, was there anything else you wanted to add? No, to no, just uh, just want to say one more time, congratulations to, 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 to the Melbourne Football Club. It was one of the most amazing comebacks and pieces of football genius I have ever seen. Just quickly, one more thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the nighttime grand final, did you like it? Uh, no. I, I, I loved the, the, I liked the entertainment. I thought it was good. Uh, it was too long. I'm, I'm sure many people, I'm not well, I wasn't one of them, but I'm sure, I saw people posting on Twitter pictures of what they were drinking at 9am. I thought, you're not going to be awake when the game starts. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, Damien, no. who organises this podcast, he, he, about six o'clock, he said, I'm buggered. I've been waiting all day. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I watched the storm in the afternoon. I watched them lose. And they deserve to lose to Penrith, the worst Storm game I've seen probably in my life. And I, I, I like the Melbourne Storm. I think they're brilliant. Uh, but it was too late to start. I, I think it would have, been, would have been bad if they'd had a... Um, put it earlier in Perth and maybe started here about 5pm would have been good. 
And what about moving it around? You know, Lee Matthews says... Never. <laughs> Never. I mean, would you move Wimbledon, the US Open? I mean, football, for God's sake. I wrote a song once called uh, Melbourne's Game, okay, when I was with the Melbourne Football Club. Melbourne's Game. It's our team and our name. And we're rising up. We're going to win that cup. Well, it took 57 years. Um, but my last line is me cutting in on the singer and saying, football, we invented it. And that is why it must stay at the MCG. I think Perth handled it very well and very delicately and did it right, but the game deserves to be here. I know in America they move the Super Bowl around, but this is the MCG is the home of Australian football and every grand final should be held there. Well, Mr Hinch, we are in furious agreement. <laughs> All right, Sunshine, talk to you. Ciao.